0: final chapter in the Bible speaks of the glory that is to be found at the end of this age when the heavenly city descends and the Lord transforms and renews this creation by purging the world of evil. Revelation chapter 22 verses 1 to 7. Then the angel showed me the river and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now turning with me to Psalm chapter 46. We read once more, of that river of life of which we've been told in Revelation 22. Here, in the midst of this psalm, it gives us the broader context for which the Apostle John had written in Revelation. Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamote, a song, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. And the God of Jacob is our fortress. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, We ask that this morning, you would open our eyes to see those wonderful things that you have promised to the children of men. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, what troubles the anxious heart? Maybe if we could put the question more pointedly, what troubles your heart? What things do you get anxious about? i need to think about that for a moment. I'm not a fan of scary movies. I actually find them rather boring, but I will tell you the scariest movie I have ever seen. It's a movie came out about ten years ago called The Impossible. It's a movie that's not about ghosts or slashers. Rather, it's a true story about the 2004 tsunami that came on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, and killed hundreds of thousands of people. The movie itself is told from the perspective of an English family visiting this region on holiday. I don't know if there's a movie that's ever stressed me out as much as that one. It makes one realize how frightening natural disasters truly can be. What we see here in the psalm this morning is this is a psalm about the end of the world, the horror of final judgment, you see that with that language there of mountains toppling and melting into the sea. This is not something you see on a daily basis. Yet, despise, despite the raging of the cosmos, amidst the fury of the nations, we find in the psalm that there remains a safe haven and a refuge in the midst of the storm. And that is the maker of heaven and earth. There are three stanzas to this particular psalm, each one accented, it's ended by that, that language, that word selah, and that, that idea that you're to, to stop and meditate on the very things that you have just read or heard. And each of these scenes, you see in verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 7, and verses 8 to 12, each scene highlights the protection that God gives to his church in the midst of trouble. This is given for a particular purpose so that you would not fear whatever troubles may come. We'll see those three particular comforts that the Lord gives in this psalm. The first being that of courage in verses 1 to 3, the second that of delight in verses 4 to 7, and the third that of peace in verses 8 to 12. Courage, delight, and peace. The psalm here begins with this curious superscript to the choir master, to the music director of the Sons of Korah. These were the the Levitical priests who who wrote a a good number of inspired psalms for the people of God uh, in the Old Testament to sing. But then it says this, according to the Alamote. And you think, I don't remember what the Alamote is. I don't know what it is. I remember the Alamo, but perhaps not the Alamote. But that word there in the Hebrew, alamot, is that word there meaning virgin or maiden. It's the same word you find in Isaiah chapter 7, where the prophet promises that the alamot, the virgin, the young maiden, will give birth to a son. Imagine a cinematic the cinematic spectacle that is set before us. Here, we have described in this opening scene a global earthquake, a global fire, such that the mountains totter and melt into a boiling sea. And yet the event is narrated and sung by a choir of young maidens singing in the city of God. That is what you are to imagine. This is what the people of God would hear in the temple. A choir of young girls singing this song reminding us that this is not simply a song uh, for the mighty warriors in battle, but even for little boys and girls. The girls begin by opening with the main theme of the song in verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength. He is a very present help in times of trouble. It's a phrase that's repeated two more times, albeit somewhat differently Here, the opening of this first stanza, and then at the close of the next two stanzas, you see it here uh, once more in verse 7, and again in verse 11. This is a repeated refrain that we see echoing throughout this particular song. The maker of heaven and earth... The one who has created all things by the very word of his power, who spoke all things into existence from which there is nothing that falls outside of his power, that there is nothing that has not been created by God. This very one is for us a refuge. He is ever present with us in the midst of toil and trouble. That word there in the Hebrew, trouble, quite literally, could be translated As anxiety or distress. Quite literally, it's to be put into a tight place. We could put it like this God is for us a refuge in time of anxiety. What troubles your anxious heart? God is your refuge. That's the point of the song. And so the choir of maidens cheer with one voice in verse 2. Therefore, on the basis of this, we will not be afraid. When will we not be afraid? Even when the world around us falls apart. Here, the text speaks of mountains melting, seas boiling, and the earth breaking apart. There's a certain play on words you see here in the ESV. It speaks of the wavering, uh, the, the tottering of the mountains. It can also be translated as the, the melting of the mountains. It's the very thing that happens when the Lord descends upon Mount Sinai, and it describes as the top of the melt, uh, mountain itself, melting like wax before the presence of the Lord. This is... The end of the world. This is not just a seasonal wildfire. Just a regular earthquake that the West Coast experiences every few years. The end has come. There is no escape. What could be more distressing than that? Peter himself reminds us what will befall this creation on the day of the Lord's return in 2 Peter chapter 3, that the heavens and the earth are stored up for fire. Interesting then that the language here of Psalm 46 Uh, suggests that there is a great fire cataclysm that is approaching. If the seas are boiling and the mountains are melting, it assumes that there is a fiery presence that has come to consume this whole earth, and it is the very thing of which the New Testament speaks. It's the very thing of which our Savior speaks when he speaks that Sodom and Gomorrah are just a picture of what will happen to the whole earth on that last day, who will escape the fiery wrath of God? It's the scariest event to befall the human race. Nevertheless, the emphasis here is what? That God is always our refuge, therefore we will not fear even on the day of judgment. For our protector is sure. He gives us courage He strengthens the feeble heart regardless of the circumstances. Well, we see a transition take place in verses 4 to 7 where the scene shifts uh, from the roaring seas to that of a quiet stream. Something of a dramatic contrast. Fire has fallen upon the earth to consume it, yet the people of God rest secure. Again, the imagery shifts. It's no longer an ecological calamity, as it were. Rather, what we see before us is an international geopolitical conflict. The war to end all wars. Where the people of God, that is to say the church, has been hemmed in. They have been put into a tight place by the nation's. It's a scene we see reflected over and over again throughout the Psalter, even beginning as early as Psalm chapter 2, that the nations have taken counsel together against the Lord and his anointed and they have surrounded the city of God, the fortress of Zion. In verses 1 to 3, the maiden choir has sung of the raging of the sea and the quaking of the mountains, but here it is not the sea that rages, it is the nations that rage. Here it is the kingdoms that quake rather than the mountains. In other words, there's this intentional parallel that the, that the psalmist, this poet under inspiration of the Spirit, of the spirit is drawing together for us. We are called to consider the scene of verses 4 to 7 in light of the imagery given to us in the first three verses. If verses 4 to 7 depict an embattled Zion, as it were, verses 1 to 3 has already painted for us that picture of their downfall. The nations may roar, the kingdoms may quake, but they will melt and topple into the heart of the sea. I doubt any of us who have ever visited the Rockies have ever looked at it and said, that's pretty flimsy. I could take that. You no, know, when you look at it, you're, you're, you're left flabbergasted. You, th- you think how, how powerful, how, how huge, how towering. How could these things ever topple? What could ever topple? The Rockies, what could ever topple Mount Rainier, Mount Hood here in the Cascades? Well, the psalmist wants us to imagine is that the church, the city of God on earth, when they see the nations attacked, they look at the nations as if they're towering mountains. How can the church, as flimsy as we are, as small and beleaguered as we are, ever be delivered? The Lord says that the nations on that day will look much like the mountains that are being described that melt and topple into the heart of the sea. Yet the nation seems so numerous, so mighty. It causes great anxiety when we hear of the persecution that is befalling our brothers and sisters in other countries, when we hear uh, of the threat and the rumors that always constantly arise whether or not our religious liberties here in the West will be stripped away. There's a tendency to grow anxious. Who will ever stand up for us? These powers of darkness seem too powerful. They seem too mighty. And yet the psalmist tells us here again that the Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth is his name, as we sing in that great Lutheran hymn. The Lord of the hosts of what? When you read that, riff, that phrase, the Lord of the hosts, is speaking of the Lord as the commander of the armies of heaven itself. He is the Lord. He is the captain of the hosts of the angels of heaven. The church shall not be moved. Now, if you were to go about reading about the, uh, the geography of ancient Jerusalem, there's one thing that you'd particularly notice. Because here it says, as the nations have surrounded the city of God, of course, in the Old Testament. Uh, it's Jerusalem that gives us a picture of that true spiritual city. But when you look at Jerusalem, you, re- you recognize there isn't a massive river that runs through Jerusalem. There's a little stream, mostly underground. Uh, the Old Testament speaks of it. It's the, it's the stream of the Siloam. Isaiah will speak about that. It's not a mighty river that flows through it. It's a small stream. How could that ever compare with the, the great power of The Nile the mighty river of the Euphrates. And yet that's the image that the Lord always presents before his people, isn't it? That is the weak that triumphs over the strong. It is God's foolishness which devastates the sages of this age. It is this small river that gladdens the heart of men because they look at it. They know that here is a river that brings peace, though the seas around them may roar and fume and foam and broil and rage. There's a city with a river that runs through it that gladdens the heart of men. That's why Revelation chapter 22 employs this particular psalm to speak of the healing that the river and the tree of life brings to the nations. Our Savior himself in John chapter 7 speaks as he, uh, at a particular feast, at a point in the year, he goes up to Jerusalem and he stands up and he speaks of the river of life that flows through him. And here he speaks of what? The inundation of the Spirit. That all who believe in Christ will find the river of true delight. It's invisible, it's hidden. Much like the river of Siloam. And yet, what pre- peace and what joy it brings as it gladdens the church as they know and find this great comfort that the nations don't stand a chance against our mighty fortress. The nations may roar, but lo, their doom is sure. One little word shall fell them. The day of the Lord's return, he comes and he speaks. That's all he does. And the armies are put to flight. Again, there's a play on words here in the Hebrew. Just as the mountains sway or melt in verse 2, just as the nations sway or melt in the opening here of verse 6, so at the end of verse 6, the Lord speaks and now the earth melts. The Lord speaks and the nations of man crumble, and yet the city of God stands safe and secure. For God is with us and God is for us. He is our mighty fortress. Final scene, verses 8 to 12. Now the maiden choir sings, calling us to behold the horrors, the desolations that the Lord has wrought in the earth. Judgment has come it has fallen upon the ungodly. The world has come, uh, uh, become a, a global Chernobyl, as it were. Much like Sodom and Gomorrah, As Jesus himself attests in Luke chapter 17, what is that horror? Here is the last battle. It is the war that will literally end all wars. It is where every man, woman, and child will be confronted with their sins they have not been repented and pardoned it will stand over them and they will be condemned and consigned to god's everlasting wrath for all eternity come and behold the desolations that the lord will bring as he judges the nations of men and yet at the same time notice the uh, the sharp contrast that comes here come behold the horrors what is that horror well, he makes wars to cease. Not only is it horror for the bad guys, it is good news for those who have been oppressed. Come and behold the salvation that the Lord brings as the Lord triumphs over the forces of darkness. The battle bow is broken, the spear is shattered, the chariots are converted into fire pits as Ezekiel 37 tells us. That the, the weapons of war become fossil fuel, as it were. Peace forever. As Calvin describes in this psalm, God's act of war is, as it were, to bring an end to war itself. As the Lord comes to judge all international disputes, the pikes are retooled into plows. Such is the great prophecies of Isaiah chapter 2, Micah chapter 4, and Ezekiel 39. The Lord adjudicates all the nations and all the peoples, and He puts the soldier and the mercenary out of business It only comes on the last day. And on that day, no one will profane the Lord's name any longer. He alone will be exalted among the nations, where every knee and every, bow, every tongue, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that the Lord and His Messiah, Messiah rule in justice. That is the great promise and song of the Psalter. Over. And over and over again. It's the very thing that we see Paul himself speaking about in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ himself, being the anointed Messiah who has suffered for the sake of his people, has now been highly exalted, so that at that last day, every knee shall bow, whether in heaven, in the earth, or under the earth, will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ and confess that he is the true Lord of heaven and earth. And so the Lord speaks, be still and know that I am God. As the wars surround us, as so many natural catastrophes plague us, be still and know that I am God. Who is it that the Lord is speaking to? Well, in one sense, we could say he's speaking to everyone as the Lord comes to judge the nations. But it's curious word here. It's a curious phrase. Be still. Quite literally, it means to stop, to let go, to leave it alone. To the nations who wield the sword against the church and will not relent, the Lord is saying, let it go. Relax your grip on the sword. Repent, in other words, before it is too late. Stand in awe of him who has created heaven and earth and will not let any feature of his creation destroy the apple of his eye. He who will purge the world by fire on the last days so that none, none will escape. None but those who trust in the Lord and his Messiah. And yet I think here there's an even more pointed application to the church where the Lord says be Still. How did the psalm open? It speaks of the anxious heart, of the individual who has been distressed because of the various catastrophes that plague the world, and that the Lord, who is our refuge, gives us the courage that we would not fear, that we would not grow anxious. And so now the Lord says to his church, Be still. Relax and know that I am God. It's quite interesting in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word that's used there actually means devote your time to leisure. It's not what you'd expect in this song. The world's being destroyed by a fire and the Lord says, come behold the desolations that the Lord has bought, uh, has wrought upon the earth now to the church relax. In other words, what is he saying? Do not be anxious. God is our refuge and our help, an ever-present help in times of anxiety and distress. The Lord is not only our refuge on the last day, the very point of the opening of this psalm is he is an ever-present help. He is always present as our fortress, if God will deliver us from the wrath that is to befall this world at the end of the age, do you not think he won't care for you among the smaller things? Isn't that the thing our Savior says to his church over and over again in his earthly ministry? This is the Father who presides even over the funeral of every spirit that falls to the ground. There is nothing that falls outside of his sovereignty. Everything that he does is for your good, and nothing will befall you apart from his gracious will. That the Lord is so good and so great that even death itself, which befalls every one of us, will not even have a sting. So much so that on the day of the Lord's return, death itself will be undone, as death will be put to death. And yet, as the anxieties that we feel when we look around us, we feel as if somebody has taken an invisible hand and begun to squeeze our own hearts where we feel like we cannot breathe. We feel like we would not let go because of the worries and we think of the horrors that might soon befall us. And here, the Lord gives His command to His church, be still and trust yourself to Him who does all things justly. There is a river whose streams will gladden your heart it's the Spirit whom the Lord has poured out on His church given as a promise that God is with us and that God is for us. And if God is for us, who could ever stand against us? She shall not be moved, though your whole world feels as if it is falling apart. If God will deliver you on the last day through the great day of trouble, do you not think He will not deliver you through every trouble? He is our ever-present help. There is no natural catastrophe. There is no military force that can pluck the church from God's protective power. Paul himself attests to this in Romans chapter 8, where he says that, I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord because God is for us. God is with us. He is our Emmanuel. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And that is the great glory of the gospel, that God demonstrated his own love for his people, that he sent his son and named him Jesus, our Emmanuel. God with us to be our strength to be our fortress and our shelter in a time of the storm. And this is exactly how Jesus has interpreted this very psalm. Turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. Here it is, Jesus' final week as he's entered Jerusalem, right before he's about to be crucified, and his disciples begin to ask him about the end of the world. And Jesus begins to speak very plainly, but he's not simply giving them instruction. Jesus, as the good shepherd, begins to give pastoral care to exhort them what they are to do as these catastrophes uh, escalate as we barrel closer and closer to that final day. Look at verse 25. These are the things that will happen as the end looms near, that there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. There will be a great distress of nations. Where we heard that language before? Nation will rise against nation. Verse 11. There will be earthquakes, famines, pestilences, terrors, and great signs from heaven. Verse 12. The church will be surrounded. Targeted, imprisoned, persecuted. Verse 16, the church will be betrayed by family and friends and even put to death. Who would not be anxious about such things? As the church seems to be standing on her last leg, as the nations have gone to battle against the church, as a pestilence And calamity and earthquake and fire continues to rise in increasing and escalating ways. Yet, verse 18, our Savior says what? And yet not a hair of your head will perish. Verse 25, and there'll be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And on earth there'll be distress of nations. Language we see here in Psalm 46, in perplexity, because of the roaring of the sea and the roaring of the waves. Where have we heard that language before? People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming in the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Where do you think our Lord is getting this? Of course, you could say on the one one hand, he's God, so he could say whatever he wants. But Jesus is intentionally echoing the language from Psalm chapter 46, this very context within which we are speaking, saying, this is what the end will look like. Read your Old Testament. Jesus is not saying anything new here. He's opening their eyes to things that they perhaps have missed. The roaring of the seas and the waves, the roaring of the nations, the distress and the perplexity of the nations. How are you to act and behave, O church? What should we do in times of such distress and anxiety? We see our Lord's response in verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Be still. Know that I am God. Our Savior's own instruction drawn from the passage here before us this morning. Therefore, we will not fear, for the God of Jacob is our mighty fortress. Are you anxious about what tomorrow brings? Cast your cares on the Lord, for He cares for you. Are you wearied by apprehensions and fears from the daily news? Come to me, our Savior says. All who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. Isaiah 35. And as our Savior says, Look up, for your redemption draws nigh. Do not fear little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, that everlasting city. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we do pray that your grace would assuage all of our fears. We pray that you would deliver us from this present evil age, that you would lead us in your righteousness, and that you would cause us not to fear, even when we cross through the valley of the shadow of death. Teach us to fear no evil, for You, our great God, our Emmanuel, You are with us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.